If you have your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Originally, we're going to be in Philippians 2. This is part of the problem with not preaching verse by verse, verse by verse through books of the Bible. Is that I get to Wednesday and I'm studying and I've got most of the sermon written and I'm studying another passage that relates to the sermon and I realize that passage actually communicates the point way better on its own. And so I spend all Wednesday morning completely rewriting the sermon. So I have like a second sermon that's written on Philippians 2. So here we are, John chapter 17. Beginning verse 1, we'll read all the way through verse 26. We'll move rather quickly. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. That they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that 
the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, may you do what only you can do by the work of your Spirit. May you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and then mouths to go speak. Father, for your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. There is admittedly much richness in this passage and could spend multiple weeks preaching through this passage, but will not do it justice by any measure. But I think it's very important as we think about habits of grace, this passage has a lot to say to ourselves. Let me begin here. We give ourselves to so many things. We endeavor to go so many different places with our lives and our minds and our emotions and our experiences. We endeavor to go so many different places. Right now, I want you to think this question. Think of this question. What has consumed my thoughts this past week? What have I given my thoughts to this past week? What, what's come when I'm not thinking about anything else or I'm not being focused on a particular task? What comes to mind? What is consuming my thoughts this past week? Or maybe another way of asking a similar question, what has consumed my emotions this past week? What has driven me up or driven me down or driven me sideways? What has captured my emotions? Whatever your answer is, somewhere in there is something you think and have felt this past week is worth giving yourself to. It's worth committing yourself to, committing your time to. It's what captured your time and captured your emotions. It's something you believed was worthy of giving yourself to. Maybe it's something like a significant other or a sports ball game or some health fad or house repair. Now, these things may not be bad things, right? I mean, even these things that are listed are not necessarily bad. But whatever we are giving ourselves to, hear me clearly, is the streams where we think we will find blessing. It is the streams where we think we will find grace. So, in those moments when nothing is provoking your thought towards something else, Whatever comes out, whatever flows from your heart in that moment is telling you where you internally, where your heart believes, it will find a stream of grace. We're made to desire that. We are made to desire blessing and goodness, and there's nothing wrong with that. But our hearts gravitate towards, our emotions gravitate towards, our minds gravitate towards whatever we think will bring us a stream of grace. Now, it might be something that keeps coming to mind or coming up that you're like, oh, I, I hate that thing, or, I, or I'm growing in bitterness towards that thing. So it, it, for you, in that sense, it's not, oh, I'll find, I'm finding grace in the bitterness of this, but I'll, finding gra- I'll find grace if I could change it. And the bitterness is showing that you have given yourself, to the, at the very least, the thought of changing that circumstance. 
Whatever we are giving ourselves to is the streams where we think we will find a measure of blessing. If I could just make this work over here, if I, if I just dwell on this good thing here, I will find blessing. Again, not that these individual things on their own or in good measure are wrong. But so we place ourselves in these streams. But I want to ask this question and hopefully answer this question today. What is the greatest endeavor that you and I could ever give ourselves to? What is the greatest endeavor that we could give ourselves to? What is it that would be best for us to consume ourselves with? Listen carefully to these words that we just read. Verse 3. If you have a, a real important Bible, these would be in red. And this is eternal life. I mean, listen to Jesus' words. And this is eternal life. Whatever follows Jesus' words there is eternally important. You might even say, of most importance for you and I. Whatever follows those words, you and I better give everything we have to. It should consume every part of us. should drive everything we think about. It should be the landing place of every thought we take captive. It should be the thing that drives our thoughts, our emotions. It should be the thing that wells up inside of us when nothing is provoking us. And this is eternal life. That they know you. End of sermon. Let's pray. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, now think about this a, a little further with me for just a second. You got to get the context here. Jesus is well aware of the verses about to be written. Jesus is about to enter his darkest hours. He's bearing the weight of God's wrath. He will suffer underneath the crushing weight of his Father's justifying work. And yet he says what? Eternal life. I'm about to die. Eternal life. Eternal life. He's about to be crucified, and yet he is saying to his Father, Eternal life. But I'm about to die. Eternal life is what? Knowing the one that's about to crush me. That's eternal life. Is knowing 
him. I mean, think, think about that. Jesus is about to bear the weight of his father's wrath, and he knows something of this from the Old Testament of what this is going to be like. And he says, listen, my followers, eternal life is knowing him and knowing me whom he sent. Is he truly knowing him is the greatest endeavor we could ever give ourselves to. First thing I want us to see is truly knowing him. There's much to be said about this thought of what does it mean to truly know him. I left it in an ongoing sense here, truly knowing him, an ongoing action that was on purpose. But see, listen, we know lots of things about God. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know lots of things about God. Assuming it was a good church. At least halfway decent. You know lots of things about God, lots of things about Jesus, lots of doctrine, etc. But this knowing Him that Jesus is referring to is not just a, a mental knowing. It's not what Jesus is talking about. It can't be what Jesus is talking about. If we just simply look at the context in which Jesus says eternal life is knowing Him, I think we can at least begin a very foundationally healthy understanding of knowing Him. So we're not going to give all aspects of knowing Him, but just looking at this passage, what is it showing us? At the very least, it's showing us that it's a relational knowing. It's a deep knowing. It's a heartfelt knowing. It's an intimate knowing. It's a possessive knowing, even a a glorified knowing. It's a trusting and a love-filled knowing. I want to work through some of those. Here is what it looks like to really know Him, just from this passage here. You look at verse 6. It says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Listen, knowing him, knowing the Father, means knowing Jesus. There's no way around this. It's knowing Christ. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But I want you to see here, I kept them in your name, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Knowing Him means knowing Jesus, and knowing Him means knowing that you are kept, knowing that you are guarded, knowing that you have been protected and are being protected. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now there's two things I want to point out in this particular verse. The first one is this, is knowing Him is knowing His glory. Knowing Him is knowing His glory. You want to know how well you know Him? 
compare that to how well you give yourself to the glory of something else. I keep, I'm just encaptured by this over here. Well, that's, that's revealing a measure of how much you know the glory of God. What it means is that your knowledge of the glory of God over here is weak compared to your perceived understanding of the glory of something else. But Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So knowing is knowing His glory, knowing the weightiness of His existence, knowing the the worth of His worship. And certainly, this is an ongoing task, an ongoing reality, because we'll Spend an eternity knowing the weightiness of His glory, knowing the weightiness of His person. To know Him is to know how pathetic everything else is that you try to worship. Here's a question. You want to know if you are knowing Him in His glory? How do you respond when truth is spoken that points out your glorying in something else? When, when someone says, hey, you're worshiping something else, how do you respond in that moment? Does the care and concern come like a breath of fresh air? Or does it fly right over your head or even cause you to get bitter? What happens? At the very least, humility says, okay, Let me consider deeply this. Knowing Him is knowing His glory. Second, knowing Him means unity with the body. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And that's not the only time Jesus in this priestly prayer puts emphasis on the idea of being one with the body. He says it time and time and time again in this high priestly prayer. If you want some of the most important things to Jesus, get Him in His moments before He's about to die when He's praying on our behalf to the Lord, to His Father. Knowing Him means unity with the body. And you might argue, oh, well, there's the universal church. I'm unified with the universal church. It's fantastic. How are you practice, practically doing that each and every day? I don't want to get in a universal church versus local church argument here, but the way we work that out, this part is in the local body. Very briefly here, This idea of being one is they are one. It means knowing and being known in a body. It means knowing and being known. How do you live as one? You can't live as one unless you know. That's part of Jesus' point here. you, You can't follow God. You can't have eternal life apart from knowing God. And by the way, He does know you. I mean, that's assumed in the passage. But you can't. You're not going to have this eternal life unless you know God. The, the same thought is this, in the same context here as he's referring to being one. You can't be one unless you are known and you are being known. Or you're knowing and being known. It's easy, though, to live in isolation and hiding. 
I mean, ask the question, does anyone know your darkest secrets, your darkest struggles? Does anyone know it who might actually speak the truth to it? I mean, it's easy to have conversations. It's easy to just be with people. I mean, for the most part. But is it, it's not easy to be one with other people. It means being known and knowing. Listen, we like to hide things, though. We like to keep things secret. We like to... What we really like to do is we like to run when things get inconvenient for our greatest desires. Knowing God means being in community with one another. So I would encourage you, if I could just be as blunt as I possibly could at this moment... If you're not digging into community with believers, particularly, I think this is arguably primarily in your covenant body, then you are not actively knowing God. Because Jesus puts a huge emphasis on this passage. Eternal life leads to knowing God. Or the eternal life is knowing God. And part of the way this works itself out is being one with another. Verse 23. He says, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So again, here's another example of the I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one. So here's this unity thing going on again and what it means to actually know God. <clears throat> but we've already addressed that, so moving on to the next point, where he says that, that, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So listen, knowing Him means increasingly knowing our union with Jesus. To know God necessarily involves knowing our union with Christ. And none of us know that to its fullest measure. Now, practically, so how do I know that I'm growing and knowing my union with Christ? Well, one of the first markers would be humility. Humility. Listen, because to know Him means I don't have to hide my sin. I don't have to justify my sin. I can confess it. To know Him means I can trust in all the appropriate ways. Our union with Christ, again, has so many implications. I don't have time for them. For all of them. Knowing Him means increasingly realizing our union with Jesus. But also knowing Him means to know that you are loved. That you are loved. That you are loved. That you don't have to look for love in all the wrong places. To know Him is to know that you are loved. But you are loved enough to not be left to your unrighteousness and your filth. 
You're loved enough to be told what you need to hear even when you're not willing to hear it. Knowing Him means knowing that you're loved, that you don't have to earn His love, but that you have it because you are in Christ. That you don't have to look for love anywhere else because you have the love of the Father. And so knowing Him is not just a mental thing. It's also an emotional. It's an experiential reality as well. It's deep. It's intimate. It's something that changes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. That we get to know the Creator of the universe. That He has not hidden Himself completely from us. So here's the question next in this progression. How do we know Him? How do we know Him? I just, said, I just gave you evidence of what it looks like to know Him. Now, how do we know Him? How do we grow in knowing Him? We know Him primarily by His voice. We know Him primarily by His voice. You say, well, I know Him by creation. We can know parts of God by His creation, but how would you know how to interpret that creation if He had not first spoken with His voice and told you how to understand creation? So I want to give you first a more impressive picture of his voice than probably most of us have. <clears throat> uh, I think David Mathis was helpful in laying out a few of these in his book. But a more impressive picture of his voice, and then we'll move into specifically some more details about this. But first of all, think of the word original, as, as Mathis calls it. We see His Word, listen, we need to see His Word, rather, as a general principle rather than specific practices. And I think that's really helpful. Seeing His Word as a general, and we'll get to that general principle in a second, but rather than specific practices. Most of us approach the Scriptures looking for specific practices. I think this is a fundamental issue with Christianity. It's a fundamental issue with lots of really bad preaching. We're just going to go to the Bible and try and gather five steps to this or five steps to that. Or I'm going to go to the Scripture and go, what is it I need to think or say today? That's a fundamental issue. That's a problem. Because here's the the reality. When you see His Word most fundamentally as giving you specific practices, two things happens. One, that leads to legalism. When you see His Word as fundamentally about practices, then it leads to legalism. And if you read, second, if you read the Bible mostly to find ways to live, you have made the Bible about you and not about God. The Bible is not fundamentally about specific practices. Listen, before printing and binding the Scriptures, consider the concept of God's Word. So before anything was written down, what was God's Word like before that? The Bible says that God speaks. That He reveals Himself to Adam and Eve. Before anything's written down, He comes and He speaks to Adam. He speaks. As a matter of fact, even before that, He speaks creation into existence. Do you realize that the original creation and the new creation begin with the voice of God? With Him speaking. Go read Genesis 1-3 and 2 Corinthians 
Listen, the one who creates, he reveals himself to us. He communicates with us. John Frame says this about his word, that his powerful and authoritative self-expression. When God speaks, he reveals himself. Listen, the one who creates us and sustains us moment by moment has expressed himself to us in human words. And if the creator of the world has spoken, the implication is we should listen. Listen, the other means of grace, while just as vital, are not as fundamental as this one. Because if God had not spoken first, we would not know who or what to speak to. We would not know what or who and what's, what's going on. We would know how to interpret the things around us. If God had not spoken first. As we talked about last week, it is a person speaking to us. And He is the one who initiated So the word original, thinking about the word prior to being written down. Next, you have the word incarnate. You have the word made flesh. You have God speaking, God's words made present with us. Visibly, physically present among us. Listen, the, the complete and climactic self-revelation of God to man is the God-man, His Son, Mathis says. He is the one who has made the Father known completely. We go read passages like Colossians and Hebrews 1. And me quote, Jesus is God's culminating self-expression and says without sham or embellishment, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen that He's not speaking in hyperbole. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking literally. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What is He saying? Whoever has seen me has seen the Word in the flesh. You read passages like John 1 and John 14. Jesus is the divine human Word that our souls need for survival and strength and growth. The Word incarnate. Number three. The word proclaimed. The word proclaimed. The gospel word. The message about Jesus. The word of Christ. For Paul, the phrases preach Christ and proclaim Christ and speak the word are synonymous. The idea of speaking the word is the idea of speaking Jesus. Because Jesus is what? He is God and He is the word made flesh. It is the word of truth or the gospel that not only comes to us for conversion, but also bears fruit and grows. Passages like Colossians 1 verse 5. And so in the 
fight for Christian joy, John Piper writes this, The central strategy is to preach the gospel to yourself, hearing the word of the cross and preaching it to ourselves is the central strategy for sinners in the fight for joy. Whenever we ask the question, who needs to hear the gospel? Everyone. Everyone. Not everyone outside the church. Not the lost people in the church. Everyone. Evangelism is easy in that sense. You're going to preach Jesus, no matter who it is. No matter who it is, whether I'm having a conversation after church, sitting in my office, or at the skate park. Because I find myself there now. We preach Jesus. This is the word proclaimed. Next, we have the word written. We have the word written. Right, so listen, all of these things, we're talking about the Word beyond just the Scriptures. But now we get to the Word written. We need the Scriptures as God's inspired and errant and infallible revelation of Himself. I think Mathis said, it is clear that we need to soak our lives in the voice of God. Soak our lives in the voice of God. Now listen, you can take in the Scriptures in many different ways. That's why we're not spending, we can spend time in the pragmatics of all these things, and maybe we should, and hopefully you will. But there's lots of different ways that we can take in the Scriptures. But I want to give you two, what I think, just from observation, pastorally to you all, are two of the most neglected means of putting yourself, practically putting yourself in the streams of God's grace through hearing His voice. The first one is this, a plain reading of the Scriptures. A plain reading of, what, I, what do I mean by that? Not a blog, not desiring God as much as I love desiring God, not a Christian book, but just reading your Bible. Sitting down, saying, God, may I know you more. Read. I'm not saying those other things are bad. Read a good blog. Stay away from the bad ones, is what I'm implying. Read a good Christian book, that's fine. Again, not a bad one. Read your Bible. Just sit down and read it. Number two. The, the second way, I think, is a, a, a very neglected means of putting yourself in the stream of God's grace, and that is this. Submitting to the Scriptures. Do you hear me? Submitting to the Scriptures, that's an important phrase. When they are spoken to you specifically from your leaders. Submitting to the Scriptures when they're taught to you, when they're spoken to you. And not just your leaders, there's certainly other reasons for that, or other areas too. 
But for example, in preaching, there is so much each week for you to work through in this 60 minutes or 72 minutes, whatever it ends up being. In these few minutes, so much for you to work through that you could spend all week, every quiet time, pressing through that passage, pressing through the applications. That Listen, God is giving your elders application and help from this particular passage for you, for your soul, for you to know Him. Now listen, I'm not saying that every ounce of your study needs to be centered around the sermon. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you don't take advantage of it, you're foolish. So are you placing yourself in that stream well? That's the question. Placing yourself in that stream well. So do you make it a point to not just catch the podcast, but to listen well, to take notes, apply it, seek help in applying? Do you take advantage of the seminars that we offer? By the way, we don't just offer those because we think they will be cool. We offer them because we think they are a stream of grace that you need to swim in. They'll be helpful for you. A place I've also noticed this as well is in counseling. I've noticed a trend over, I don't know, that's how many years? Five, it's 18, that's 14 years, 15 years. Am I th- 33? I, I don't know. I stopped counting at 18. I just noticed this trend that when we want something so bad, when we address these issues with the scriptures, the scriptures get ignored. They don't get addressed. Like they, they won't be answered. The text isn't dealt with. Here's a text. Here's a truth from God's word. I remember one time with Pastor Rusty, both of us sitting in a session together. This is right, three or four years ago. Multiple hours. Well, what about this passage? What about this passage? And it just gets ignored. Like just, well, but this was my experience, or this was my thoughts, and this is, what about the scriptures? Again, we're taking ourselves out of the stream of God's grace, and it's just crazy. And I want to give you some pastoral observations. But here's what we have. We have the stream of grace called God's voice. The creator of the world and his voice. Verse 8. Listen to Jesus' words. For I have given them the words that what? You gave me. Think about what Jesus is saying. I have come to them You gave the Creator, His Father gave Him words and He spoke them to us. He said, I've given them the words that you gave me. I have spoken to them the words that you have spoken to me. What's He saying? I have been your voice to them. I have immersed them, Father, in your voice. 
I have been the stream of grace that is your voice to them. I've spoken to them the words that you have spoken to me. Listen, Jesus is coming to the climax of his ministry, and so he is summarizing his entire earthly ministry. And how does he summarize it? At least in part. He says, I gave them your words. That was my ministry, was to come give them your words. It's so disheartening to give people his words and to see them want nothing to do with it or to pick and choose what's convenient for them. I mean, Jesus, even in the midst of this high priestly prayer, shows us that even in his ministry, there is one who would not receive his words. Right, the son of destruction, he refers to him. But he says this, I made sure that they heard your voice, Father. Again, see the connection between knowing God as eternal life and how do we know God? Through His voice. Listen, eternal life equals what? We talked about this a little bit. Blessing, grace, flourishing, living forever. And where do we find these things? In the stream of His voice. I mean, here's, at least in my mind, the logical question is this. Why would we plant our effort, time, money anywhere else? Why? I mean, the only explanation is pride. Because we think there's a better place. We believe upon our own assessment, I can find a better place. This is indeed a better place. Over here. Wherever that is for you. Why would we plant our effort, our time anywhere else? The stream of His voice, the stream of grace being His voice. Our response, listen, must be to receive His voice. But there's that phrase we've, we laugh about often. Well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. I, I often say it's hard to even lead them to water. Our response must be to receive them. Jesus comes, He speaks them. We have to receive them. Listen, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So listen, to place yourself in the streams of grace is to have a heart that is ready to receive it. Is to have a heart that is ready to receive it. Yes, yes, we believe that God must grant the grace of repentance and faith, that He must grant the grace for you to receive it. We're on the same page there. That is God's work. And apart from Him, we can do nothing that is good and righteous and pleasing to Him. Got that. However, again, the grace comes with the effort. We talked about this last week. It's a both and. You don't get the grace to receive apart from trying to receive, and you don't try to receive apart from the grace. They go together. 
So the question is this, have you readied your heart to receive his voice? He says here that they received his voice. Have you readied your heart to receive his voice? Again, very quickly, the biggest obstacle to receiving his voice is pride. Psalm 10 verse 4 says this, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. In the pride of our face, we do not ready ourselves to receive his voice. I mean, here's the reality. You and I can read the scriptures, go to church, sit in a counseling session, do, be doing all the right outward actions and still be full of pride. The way that often looks like for that Christian in that position is picking and choosing what they want to hear, what truth they want to receive, what scriptures are convenient for them, and passing over the ones that aren't. So you can still, you can be in it, and our hearts are so deceptive. The prideful says, my voice is enough, I can choose. The prideful says, I want His grace, but it's going to come on my terms. It's got to come through this channel in this way. But that's not how God's grace works. In fact, God's grace works very much against the pride. The prideful does not seek Him. Why would he or she? Why would the prideful seek Him? It wouldn't make any sense. Because the prideful fancies himself a God. You see, the prideful want to be shaped by their vision and their words for life. But the lowly are shaped by his voice. The lowly, the humble. Why? Because they can actually hear it. Because they're actually ready to receive it. Listen, anytime you feel your nose go up in the air, or anytime you feel your heart tense when you're hearing, take captive that thought, that emotion, that response. See, the prideful want to be shaped. Every time you want to justify something or you want to make excuses, The lowly are shaped by his voice. The prideful inherit destruction. Our response, though, is God, make me ready to receive them, please. Make me humble. Ready my heart to receive them. Listen, we are shaped by his voice. We are shaped, like we are literally molded and made into new beings by his voice. His voice didn't stop in Genesis. He didn't just create and then he just stopped speaking. He's still speaking today. His speaking's not done. John 17, verse 14. Jesus says this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying that 
the world is shaped by its own voice. The world is shaped by its own voice, the prince of the power of the air. But we are shaped by the voice of the Lord. We are shaped by God's voice. And when we are, it will put it at odds, put us at odds with the world. It'll put us at odds with the world. Now listen, sometimes, just a quick caveat here, an application for us. Sometimes we will be at odds with one part of the world and not with another part of the world. And sometimes the opposite. Like we as Christians, I've found myself, particularly the past year or two, finding myself at odds with this group and not this group. And then in a different situation, I'm at odds with that group and not this group. Or, you know what I'm saying. The, the, the opposite. For example, on some issues, we might actually agree with more socially liberal people. On other issues, we might agree with more conservative type people. The, the, the camps, the, the, who cares? We're shaped by the Lord's voice. And not one group has all of the real estate for God's voice. We don't listen to what this group is proposing, this group is proposing. We, we listen to the voice of the Lord. And what is His voice saying? And that's where we go. That's what we look like. We are shaped by His voice. Listen, just because one group has hijacked an issue for its selfish purposes, maybe even political purposes, doesn't mean that we don't stand for the voice of the Lord. Now, how we do that is so hard, and we want to make sure we're not being lumped in with these people or these people, and all, I, I get it, that's hard, and it takes a lot of wisdom and blamelessness, but you know what? We got the Spirit. We got the Spirit to do that. But we listen, we are shaped by His voice. You're not shaped by the voice of just someone that you love. You're, just, you're not shaped by the voice of this book over here. We're shaped by these things so long as they're speaking the truth of God's Word to us. Because it's His voice that shapes us. Now again, I took, that's why I took you through the Word at God's Word is this stream of grace. Now how it comes to us can be in different ways. That's why I brought up the example of your leader speaking the Word to you. Measure it against the Word of God. And if it's here, then submit to it. It's not, you don't get to not submit to it just because I was grumpy when I said it. Moving on. Verse 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, We are sanctified in truth. We are not sanctified apart from the truth. Even in suffering, 
whether because of your own sinfulness that's brought about the suffering or the sinfulness of someone else, it is the truth that we are pointed to in suffering. Our experiences serve the purpose of leading us not just to a better life, not just to more hopefulness, not just to a better outlook. Our circumstances, God uses to lead us to what? To His voice. To hear His truth. To see His truth. To live according to His truth. To be sanctified by His truth. And Jesus says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So listen, we are shaped as God speaks. And we are shaped as we receive His voice. And as God speaks, we listen. His voice leads to what? Eternal You heard stories of people searching for the Holy Grail, right? Anybody watch Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Come on. Come on. Okay. The search for the Holy Grail. Listen. Here's the Holy Grail. It's right here. Indiana Jones was looking in the wrong spot. It's right here all along. What is it? Is it drinking from that cup? No. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Ha! That they know you, the only true God. Two quick thoughts. Humble hearts will preach the word of life to themselves and receive it from others. Humble hearts will preach the word of life to themselves and receive it from others. He's saying that they know you. And I'm saying, how do, you, how do we know him? By preaching the word of life to ourselves and receiving it from others. In the Philippians, this is the other sermon, in the Philippians passage, he says, holding fast to the word of life. This idea of holding fast to the word of life. What's he? Preaching to yourself the word of life. Reminding yourself the word of life. Memorizing the word of life. Fasting and meditating on the word of life. I've been in some counseling situations over the past few months, and one of the things that has made the biggest change in these people's lives is evidence of them holding fast to the word of God. When I'm struggling, I'm going to hold fast to the word of God. I'm going to remember the word of God. I'm going to recite the word of God. And I'm going to dwell on the word of God. And it's made all the difference in their lives. Holding fast to the word of life. Preaching the word of life to ourselves. Let me quote Mathis. In our sin, though we constantly find our response to life in our fallen world to be disconnected from the theology that we confess... So on one day we confess this theology, but the next day we live out this theology, this false theology. What do we need? We need to confess of living the false theology and affirm and hold tight and fast to the right truth. The only truth, rather. That, would, that phrase doesn't even make sense. The right truth. It doesn't make sense. He says the battleground is between our ears. I mean, it's our soul, right? 
it's, it, it's in here. What is it that is capturing your idle thoughts? What fear or frustration is filling your spare moments? Will you just listen to yourself or will you start talking? Instead, actually preaching. Not letting your concerns shape you, but forming your concerns by the power of the gospel. Did you hear that phrase? That's so helpful. Are you listening to yourself or will you start preaching to yourself? Not letting your concerns shape you, but forming your concerns by the power of the gospel. There's a difference between merely reminding ourselves of truth and preaching to ourselves the truth of the gospel. Let me quote Mathis again. What preaching the gospel to ourselves requires is this, pausing, rehearsing some expression of the Father's and Son's love and provision of goodness and rescue and joy for us and consciously seeking to have that truth shape and permeate our reality. So the scriptures, in one sense, provide the the material for preaching to ourselves the gospel of grace. They are the content to be taken up and applied to our lives in view of Jesus' person and work. I think Mathis is helpful there. Now listen, you and I will not get far if our knowing God is not deepening. It's not enough to have heard God's voice. It's only enough to be hearing God's voice. Did you hear me? It's not enough to have heard God's voice. It's only enough to be hearing God's voice. I want to give you a warning before we land the plane this morning. We hear God's voice primarily in the scriptures. Everything else is so subject to our sinfulness. I want to interpret this this way. And even when we approach the scriptures, it's so easy for us to twist things, to, to mold things, to twist things in on ourselves, to listen to what we want to listen to and ignore this over here. And this is our hearts are going to do these things. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. God's voice is in the Scriptures. And we're called to hear them. Called to hear it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Yourself is talking to you. Who should be the dominant voice in our hearts and minds? The Lord. The dominant voice. You you can't get rid of the other things. But listen, Jesus makes God's voice known. And he says that it alone, this leads to eternal life. Verse 26, And I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Listen, Jesus makes God's word known to those he loves. He makes his name known. Do you understand like what he's saying there? Like he makes the person of God known to the ones he loves. And Jesus says, I'm going to continue making it known. It's not going to stop. I'm going to continue this work. He'll continue to make his father known to his bride. Listen, the greatest display of his love is just around the corner. Just around the corner of these spoken words, Jesus will lay down his life for us. He'll lay down his life so that these words can take deep root in his people's lives. He'll die so that we see the gloriousness of his father's words, the truthfulness of his father's words, the accuracy of his father's words, the, the creation, the creating effect of his father's words, so that we'll see the power of his father's words. He will die. He will lay down his life. Right? There's no greater love than to lay down a life for a friend, much less an enemy, right? Again, Jesus says, I'm going to continue to make his love known in our hearts. So you know, when you know this love, when you love hearing his voice, and as you hear his voice, you will love, you'll grow in loving to hear his voice. And as you hear his voice, your voice will become much less important. Really, that's the battle. It's not his voice versus all these other voices out here. It's his voice versus your voice. And we want to listen to our voice. That's the one that brings us the most glory. So as you hear his voice, though, our voice will become much less important. And his will become much more glorious. And where do we hear his voice? We hear them in the Scriptures. We hear them in the Word. Why? Listen, go place yourself in the stream of God's grace that is His voice as we see it in the Scriptures. Hosea 6.3 says this, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let us press on to know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us the grace to go place ourselves in the stream of your grace that is your scriptures, where your voice is most thoroughly represented, Father. Give us the grace to go place ourselves in that stream. Each day, every day, not forsaking a day. Father, may we be as committed to it as we are committed to so many other things in our lives. Forgive us for believing as displayed in our commitment
that all these other things in our lives are the places where we'll find the most grace as we place ourselves in these streams. And give us the grace to see that it's only in these places, in these streams, where the most grace abounds. Give us the, the heart and the mind to be committed to placing ourselves and readying our hearts to, to see your grace move in these streams that you've promised to bless. Father, your word clearly, as Jesus prays here, your word is of fundamental and primary importance when it comes to where we would place ourselves by to be graced by your presence. Maybe, may your spirit rid us of our foolishness. Give us wisdom and clear eyes to see that your stream of grace flows from your voice. And we see that in your word. I thank you for your graciousness to us even today. Well, it's for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.